Radio, a constantly changing art form. Marconi. Lakehurst, New Jersey. All the humanity. The Mercury Theater. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. The New World Order. Hi, this is Casey Kasem. From that first broadcast, a medium that has been proved. Home. Trim. Winnow. Bonsai. And prune. And deposited here today. Ready to be moistened with the watering can of evolutionary dew, this is the Dennis Miller Show. ABC, always be closing if you want the knife set. Welcome to our third installment of the Blackcast tribute to the Dennis Miller Show. I'm Christian Blatt, helming this vessel for another fun-filled installment where we'll be looking back at a decade since the launch of the Dennis Miller Show. By the way, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. People ask why I haven't changed that username, but I'm still so attached to the radio show and all the people who made up the DMZ. I will always be Christian DMZ, I'll have you know. As for the Blackcast itself, you can follow us on Twitter at Blackcast, and that's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can like the Blackcast on Facebook, and of course, there's Blackcast.com. So for this week, this is going to be our third and final episode looking back on The Dennis Miller Show. We'll be back to business as usual, or Blackcast as usual, next week, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. But also, stay tuned till the end of the show. There'll be a special announcement about these Blackcast tributes to The Dennis Miller Show. I'm very excited to get the chance to catch up with one of my favorite guests of The Dennis Miller Show, musician Peter Noon. But joining us now is someone who had dozens of appearances on The Dennis Miller Show over the years, and he has a new title since the last time I talked to him. The editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, a contributor to Fox News, Steve Hayes, who is on Twitter at Stephen, and that's the S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F, Hayes. Welcome to the broadcast, Steve. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Of course, anytime. Happy to do it. Now, there's so much to talk about in this crazy world, but let's start off by doing what anyone would do and talk about a radio show that hasn't been on for two years. Your numerous appearances <laughs> on The Dennis Miller Show. I did tally them up, and you did indeed make dozens of appearances, uh, 25 to be specific. I believe it, and I, and I probably, I, I bet if we went back and we, we list, re-listened to all of those appearances, I bet I laughed harder and longer at all of Dennis's jokes than anybody else who was on there. I don't know, for whatever reason, his humor has always just spoken to me, and I would find my... He'd say these things, you know, you know how he operated, these little asides, and then he'd move on quickly, and yeah. I'd be laughing so hard I couldn't sort of collect myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as somebody who spoke with him, you know, every day on the air for three hours, he basically thrived on those little asides where if he could get me to to laugh so hard that I couldn't breathe and say the next thing I wanted to say. He was like, well, that was a job well done. And just being a part of that was great. And I mean, he loved you. He loved any, well, look, let's be honest. He loved any guests who laughed at him, but he always enjoyed talking to you because there was a good balance. You know, you provided us with some great information and great perspective. You laughed, but then also he always liked sort of knowing little bits of non-political, non-current event stuff. And the fact that you were a big Packer fan and your brother started a website called Packer Geeks. And so he always wanted to talk to you about the Packers. He'd always find a way to work it in before the call was over. Every single time. I mean, and, 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 it's, and it's great. You know, I mean, those of us who have to be obsessed with, with politics and, and you know, do this, cover this for a living, to, to a great extent, we got into this because we like it and we're political junkies and, and it's fun to do. But, you know. That's not the only thing that, that we're interested in. It was always fun to be able to 
to talk to him about it. And he, and he knew so much about the NFL. I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with the NFL and have been for years and have been obsessed with the Packers since I was literally two and I could name the entire starting <laughs> defensive team. But it was great to be able to trade information with somebody who, who knew a ton. I mean, he would always be introducing new things to me that I hadn't heard of, which was awesome. Yeah, and I think that that was sort of the, the greatest thing about Dennis Miller doing a radio show was that there was encyclopedic knowledge on everything. Like, you just mentioned that you could have named the Packers roster from when you were two. If you gave him a couple of names, he certainly could have probably rounded out the rest of that roster, and it, right, was, it, right. it was always fun. And the interesting thing is, too, the idea that, you know, Packer Geeks was your brother's website, but you'd occasionally post on it. Am I remembering that correctly? Definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. that kind of reminds me that that was an idea that our mutual friend Andrew Breitbart had. He kind of liked the idea of having people known for other things, write about sports. And, you know, I think there was so much on his plate that a Breitbart sports website never actually happened. But as anyone who knew him, and I talked earlier this week with Larry O'Connor about this. As much as Andrew was passionate about politics, he was much more passionate about the Dodgers. You know, if, if you really wanted yeah, to get him going, you talked to him about the Dodgers. And what I remember very fondly about your appearances on the show, Steve, you called us the day after the Packers won the Super Bowl and you'd lost your voice. But uh, Dennis was so excited because obviously you were so excited. You know, we obviously appreciated you making the time to uh, talk to us on. Well, it was, uh, I mean, I was, I was, look, I was stopping strangers on the street to tell them about how excited I was about the Packers game. So don't feel that flattered, man. I was just calling you because I wanted to blab a little bit. Right. So it was, it was great. I mean, that, that, Super Bowl. I went to it. I, I went to it with my dad, uh, the one in Dallas, uh, where I went to Cowboys Stadium and watched the real America's team win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and we had the best time. I ended up somehow or another talking my way into the Packers victory party at their hotel. So we showed up at the hotel. We knew they where they were, and you know, I talked to a few people. And eventually, next thing I knew, I was I was having a a beer with Sam Shields, um, who's our all pro cornerback and, um, just had such a great time. So did my dad. My poor, my poor dad was ended up being the designated driver and I, <laughs> I, I was not the designated driver. You and, were, you were the designated, enjoyed, you were the designated drunkard. Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> much. And we watched Kid Rock with the surprise entertainment and, uh, stayed there, I think till like four in the morning or something insane it was, I don't do that very often now that I'm old and gray. Yeah, but I think the Packers winning the Super Bowl is certainly the kind of occasion where, you know, you're going to stay out a little bit later. And, you know, to actually get to go to the game, obviously you're ecstatic that they won. Just being there, even if they hadn't won, you would have gotten to see them in the Super Bowl. Um, I live in right. Los Angeles now, uh, but I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan. So when they were in the World Series a couple of years ago, I actually flew to New York for two of the games misfortune on my part was that I went to the two games that they didn't win and got to see the Royals clinch on the field, but I still, <laughs> I still wouldn't trade that experience uh, getting to be there. And uh, I would hope that the next time that they're in the world series, my son will be a little bit older so I can enjoy it with him. Like you were able to with your dad. Cause as great as all that sounds, the fact that you got to go with your dad who no doubt, I'm just going to assume you're a Packers fan because your dad was a Packers fan. And that's just the way yeah, things my went. dad yeah. and my grandpa. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Great. I mean, there's no question. It's like a top 10. You know, if you're thinking about lifetime moment, yeah. top 10 lifetime moment. And if the Packers go again, there's no question we'll, we'll do everything we can to, 
to go again. Uh, and I have a little like savings fund to, because <laughs> now, you know, it's like taking out a mortgage to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, but I would find a way to do it. You know, it's funny. You have to do estate planning to be able to go to the Super Bowl. But uh, exactly. You know, exactly. And, uh, I referenced our mutual friend, Andrew Breitbart, and I'm remembering that the time that I met you actually was the only time I ever went to CPAC in 2008. And I talked also earlier this week to Larry O'Connor about this, just trying to get across that room with Andrew. Uh, this is the comparison that I gave Larry. It f was the only time that I think I could ever relate to what it was like to be standing next to one of the Beatles as they tried to get across a room. Because in that right. room, Andrew was as big as one of the Beatles, probably bigger than all the Beatles in that room. And I guess that's my, my inappropriate declaration, like John Lennon saying that they're bigger than Jesus. Me saying that Andrew Breitbart is bigger than the Beatles is kind of a very similar comment there. But, and I just remember, you know, getting to hang out with you then. And then we also went to a Dodger game with you and your buddy Buzz when you were out here at some point. And yeah. Part of all these trips, though, of course, and something that you and I traded messages about on Twitter when it was the uh, anniversary of uh, Andrew passing away, was this lunch with all these people that we went to Zanku Chicken, which was his favorite restaurant. It's sort of a little thing that I'll put on Twitter every once in a while and people respond to it. And uh, it, it was just fun going down that memory lane as we're going down all these Dennis Miller memory lanes. You know, Andrew was a very important part of the show just as a guest, but he would also guest host whenever he yeah. lived so close to the studio. And uh, it was it was great just sort of having those experiences because you would have always been somebody on the radio show, but if it weren't for Andrew, you know, I wouldn't have gotten beers with you after CPAC, gone to the Dodger game, and I wouldn't have gotten to meet your buddy Buzz. How's he doing these days? He's good. He's good. Uh, we, we occasionally still get, get beers. He's in my fantasy football league. Oh, nice. Um, and, and that was a great, that was a great trip. I mean, the Zanku chicken was, was legendary. I think we went back to Andrew's, and, and again, this is sort of becoming a theme of, of this particular podcast had had beers again <laughs> i think mid-afternoon beers um, yeah. but i i said it's after you know five six o'clock east coast time so yeah. it was time um <laughs> no it was great and you know I, we, I miss andrew all the time i think about sort of what a role he'd be playing in, in these current debates and and he was you know so fun and so provocative and like you said you go to CPAC or I was with him, you know, about a week before he passed away at a tea party rally in, in Michigan where he spoke. And it was like the whole day was such a typical Andrew day where he, you know, blew in like a tornado and had, you know, an entourage, some of whom came with them. And then he just sort of collected people as he moved <laughs> through the thing. And right. then there was a throng. And then I saw him and we chatted for a while and had a long sort of heart to heart in, in a hallway <laughs> interrupted 30 times by people who wanted to come up and get Andrew's autograph and get a picture taken with him. And then he goes and gives this speech. You know, he's telling me he has no idea what he's going to say. And, you know, I think he was genuinely nervous. He's, he's like an authentic enough guy that he, he, he wouldn't feign being nervous. And, and, course goes up and gives this totally extemporaneous stem winder pacing back and forth on the stage you know, you know with the energy of a workout and <laughs> anybody who, who went before him I remember Rick Santorum spoke either right before or right after him and Mitt Romney was close I think if I'm remembering this correctly and yeah it's just that's just a crummy thing to do to a politician <laughs> they can yeah. go before or after Andrew because he was so good and got people so wound up it was that was great
Yeah, no, no, I know. And it's obviously we miss him as as the person and the individual. And then secondarily to that, it's always interesting to think about what his take would be on what's going on in the world right now. Uh, while I have right. you on the phone, I actually wanted to ask what it's like being part of the Weekly Standard right now, because the magazine itself, and I believe you personally, were both fairly plain spoken about the fact that you weren't really supporting Trump. I remember right before the election, you actually said talked about the validity of writing in a true conservative candidate. Do you feel like it's a it's a very different world writing than if you had been sort of the opposition to Hillary Clinton? Because it's a Republican in the White House, but it's one that your publication very clearly wasn't supportive of. Yeah, I mean, we, we were skeptical of Trump. I think we remain skeptical of Trump. I'd like nothing better for the country than to, to be as wrong about Trump as a president as I was about his electoral prospect. I didn't think he could win. I didn't think he'd win the primaries. I didn't think he'd win the general. And he did both. So I got that about as wrong as you can get it. And I would love to be wrong about what kind of a president he'll be. I mean, if you think back to the last week, in some ways, it like encapsulates. I was just thinking about this on my drive home. In some ways, it's, it's like it encapsulates all of the sort of promise and concern and, you know, real worry that you had or that I had about a Trump presidency. I mean, on one hand, there was the clear upside in the Neil Gorsuch nomination. I mean, that guy is a stud. He's, he is a judicial stud. He, he easily beat back the fiercest attacks from, from Democrats. And, and, you know, in a couple cases, his exchange with Dick Durbin among them just made them look foolish. He just owned that state, was so comfortable, and, and was everything that any conservative could want in a Supreme Court nominee from Donald Trump. And that was one of the big arguments. You got to vote for, for Trump because, you know, conservatives need to, to, to take the court. So uh, on that score, that, that was a win. And then you look at the Obamacare debacle, which was, you know, a nightmare sort of all around. And I think it's fair to blame pretty much everybody with an R after their name for that failure. But, but certainly Trump, who, you know, has majorities in both houses of Congress, ran repeatedly on repealing and you know, replacing Obamacare, wrote a book or, or signed his name to a book called Art of the Deal <laughs> and and couldn't do it, couldn't make the deal on something like that, I just think is a, is a colossal failure. And I mean, there are signs that they're going to pick it back up and, and try to put it back together. But it was a huge, huge defeat. And, you know, the kind of thing that I think you worried about if, if you were a Trump skeptic. And then third, you, you look at all of the questions swirling about Russia and you know, what relationships were there? How many of them were problematic? Is there any there there? And then you look at the policy questions on Russia, where I don't think the Trump administration has been nearly tough enough on Russia. I mean, we know Russia's helping um, the Taliban in Afghanistan. We know they're expanding into Libya. They're, they're uh, outreach. They're sharing bases now with Iran. They're clearly extending their reach in a way that I think is deeply problematic for our country. And we're not doing much. I mean, we had a sort of a, a limp statement that came out of the, the White House to condemn the crackdown on the protesters in Russia over the weekend. But otherwise, it's just not been much in the way of, of policy. And that was a huge concern of mine going in. So, you know, I, I think you're, you're, at least I'm thrilled about Neil Gorsuch. I'm, I'm disappointed in the in the outcome on Obamacare, and I'm uh, I'm real worried about some of the foreign policy stuff. 
Yeah, let's sort of take those in order. Now, I think that the Neil Gorsuch situation, I think you were right. It, you know, it was the kind of candidate nominee, the kind of nominee that Trump really needed to put out there and easily acceptable. I feel like there's still some sour grapes pushback from Democrats who felt like they should have been able to have confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland, which obviously wasn't going to happen. And I kind of forget about that. And then it comes up every once in a while. I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to play with you now because you didn't play the game we wanted to. And right. I, I just felt like that was very clearly from the time that President Obama announced Merrick Garland, it wasn't going to happen. But I guess you spend all this time in Washington. People have very long memories, and I don't want to say that they're all very petty like children, but they seem petty like children. Well, a lot of them are petty like children. I mean, it, it's, you know, I think that, that you, what you say is exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's a long memory there, and then their Democrats are pretty frustrated about that. I would also say that what they look to be doing is trying to set a precedent for the future. Um, I think they're going about it the wrong way. You know, initially, uh, Chuck Schumer and other Democrats tried to make a deal with Mitch McConnell where they said, yeah, we think Gorsuch is, is well qualified. I mean, the American Bar Association has him rated as well qualified. He was in the majority of uh, his cases, 99% of the time uh, on the appeals court. He, I think he's only been overturned once by the Supreme Court. I mean, this is somebody who is a mainstream conservative justice, will be a mainstream conservative justice. And there's no reason to oppose him on qualifications. The only reason they're opposing him is on, on uh, his ideology, on his views. And so I think you're, you're seeing some Democrats who, who said to Mitch McConnell and other Republicans, hey, we'll – We'll give them, we'll let people vote for him. We'll get him above the 60 vote threshold so you don't have to use the nuclear option and approve him with 51 votes. Um, but in exchange for that, we want um, a commitment that you won't use the nuclear option next time because I think most people anticipate that there will be at least one or maybe two more Supreme Court vacancies uh, in, in Trump's term. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, perhaps, and uh, Anthony Kennedy, perhaps. And Republicans didn't take that deal. They shouldn't have taken that deal. Yeah. And I think that adds to the frustration of Democrats that they just are so powerless to do anything to stop people they disagree with from ascending to the court. Yeah, I mean, that's such a weird proposition to make, but I guess not for Washington. But the idea of like, all right, we're going to let you win this time. But hey, it's going to be our turn. So you have to let us win next time. And I don't know. That's right. not just not how politics works. That's not how anything works. You know, any kind of negotiation doesn't really work that way. I guess, again, it just goes back to the sour grapes. Uh, and I know we only have you for a couple more minutes, but I wanted to sort of share with you my thoughts on health care. How many times did the GOP vote to repeal Obamacare? You know, the House oh, would always vote it and then the Senate wouldn't do anything with it. But there were so many times there have been so many years. And the fact that it just it died before it even came to a vote. And obviously it didn't get voted on because they knew it wasn't going to pass. I was just a little more than a little surprised because they had so much time to work on it. Right. No, I mean, it was seven years, depending on, on how you, you count it. I mean, I think the certainly the Republicans in Congress were as surprised as most everybody in the country that Donald Trump won the election. So they hadn't done I mean, they'd done planning for a Trump presidency, but, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't really think that they were going to have to implement these plans. I think the the fact that they didn't have something ready to go and that there were all sorts of changes as they went along on how it was to be done. You know, I think that's I think that that doesn't speak well of, of the congressional leadership. As I say, you know, if you look back at the way that Barack Obama 
pushed for Obamacare. He knew he was going to have to do it. He spent like 170 days campaigning to do it. He gave speech after speech. He made a public case and sustained public campaign for the law, which took it from unpopular to sort of um, not popular, but not as unpopular as it had been. And then he forced it through Congress and made it the law of the land. And there just wasn't that kind of a commitment here. And look, I mean, some of that is, I think Donald Trump doesn't, he's not as committed to repealing and replacing Obamacare as a lot of conservatives would want him to be. I mean, on the debate stage uh, during the Republican primaries, he defended single-payer health care. So he's not ideologically or philosophically committed to repealing Obamacare that way. And, And there were reports after the bill was pulled that he wasn't nearly as upset about that as he has been about some other things that have happened in the early months of his presidency, like the Jeff Sessions recusal on the Russia questions and um, and some other things. Yeah, and the fact that he's said that he's willing to deal with Democrats and try to make it all work is already what they didn't want to hear. So I think you're right. He's He's more focused on fixing it than getting rid of it. You know, I think if they were there were to be something on his desk that would just take Obamacare, make a couple of fixes, a number of fixes that he would be happy with, he'd probably sign it and, you know, the party wouldn't be too happy with that. So, yeah, I think that they really want him to be as gung-ho about it as they are. But it becomes such a complicated issue because, as we've seen, so many people are legitimately at least somewhat happy with the health care they're getting. So it's a complicated issue that continues to go on. And the last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go was what you brought up, the Russia question. And it was something that I think, you know, it came up during the election and it's sort of been the source of a lot of jokes and things. It's the sort of thing that I keep expecting to go away. And then there'll always be like one new little nugget, one new person that's involved, one new thing. And then you're like, I don't know that it's the big issue that the mainstream media wants it to be. But at the same time, it's also not the non-issue that the Trump administration is telling us. Do you feel like that's a fair assessment of it? You and I are exactly in the same place on that. I mean, that's exactly how I see it. The mainstream media, um, there's an assumption that there was definitely something nefarious, and it's just a matter of time until we find it out. I'm just not sure that's true. Now, I think you can look at you know, Adam Schiff during this, this hearing last week, the, the House Intelligence Committee hearing last week, spent 15 minutes making a circumstantial case against Trump and, and pointing to sort of all of the overlapping ties and then finished what I thought was a pretty effective presentation and asked the question, do you think this is all coincidence? And it was very clear that he didn't think it was all coincidence. Yeah. And I think it's hard to, hard to believe that it would have all been coincidence. But that's not proving collusion. That's a very different thing. Maybe there's proof. Maybe it exists somewhere. Um, but we haven't seen it yet. Uh, now, I think there are things that, that raise real questions. I mean, Roger Stone, who was, um, you know, was advising Trump, at least informally, but pretty regularly, was, you know, had, had heads up about some of the WikiLeaks revelations that were coming. And WikiLeaks is widely regarded as a front for Russian intelligence, doing the dirty work of, of Russian intelligence posting the stuff that Russian intelligence is, is believed to have taken from the DNC and John Podesta and, and others. So how does a Trump advisor, even an informal Trump advisor, have a, a heads up on what WikiLeaks is posting that it is thought to have gotten from the Russians? Real legitimate question. We should get an answer to it. There are things like that, some overlap with the bank. There's a report that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, is going to be uh, meeting with the Senate Intelligence Committee at some point in the future. To testify, testify about or, or not testify, I guess, 
formally, but to, to give an interview about some meetings that he had taken with a bank that had been sanctioned by the United States after the Russians invaded Crimea, and he had had dealings, well, these meetings with this bank that were forbidden. So what was he doing? I mean, there are questions like that that I think we have to get answers to before you can just say there's nothing there. I think we're early in, in this investigation, and certainly the early signs are that it's going to be as partisan as, as everything is in Washington these days. Yeah, I think that that's a very reasonable expectation. And, you know, a great place to keep up to date on all this news as it unfolds is, of course, The Weekly Standard, theweeklystandard.com. And you're on Twitter at Stephen F. Hayes. And as I said before, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F Hayes. I don't want anybody thinking you're one of those V. Stevens because uh, very clearly (laughs) you're a P-H. In any case, uh, Steve, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate you chatting. It was fun to go down memory lane, and it's always great to hear your take on the issues. Thanks so much for joining me here on the Blackcast. Yeah, you bet. Anytime, Christian. And again, that was the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, contributor to Fox News, Steve Hayes. As I mentioned, on Twitter, at Stephen F. Hayes. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. Girls as sharp as her are something red. Joining us now is musician Peter Noon, whose website is peternoon.com, and he's on Twitter at Peter Noon. Peter, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to me here on the Blackcast. As we celebrate a decade since the launch of Dennis Miller's radio show, it was a decade ago, and granted the radio show's been gone for two years, but I still feel like it's an occasion worth getting people together and walking down memory lane and catching up and seeing how everyone's doing. Ah, me too. <laughs> Now, of course, you had the uh, very rare privilege of getting to join Dennis in his home studio so often because you're his neighbor. I I believe you're still neighbors. I think that that really made it much more of a fun conversational, like, oh, you know, let's just sit down and talk about music for an hour. And those were always some of our listeners' favorite hours when you would sit in with Dennis. Well, you know, I think, Christian, it was... It's kind of fun. It was easy. I'd just go get, get in my car and go over there and go up the black stairs to his studio. And uh, it was just always nice and friendly, you know. So sometimes interviews are not quite so friendly. You know, they want to know, like, all statistical stuff and things that I can't remember. I can only remember the fun stuff. And Dennis <laughs> always wanted to hear the fun stuff. There's a few things that I'll probably walk down memory lane with and ask you some of the things that you got to tell us on the show. Uh, But unfortunately, I did actually, (laughs) it's interesting you mentioned that, Peter, because I wanted to start with something that was less fun. Uh, Recently, Chuck Berry passed away, and uh, I kind of wanted to know your thoughts on him. I'm going to assume you had to have met him at some point. I'm just wondering if you had any Uh, specific remembrances of Chuck Berry. Well, you know, I, I think I was very fortunate because... What happened was when I was a kid in Herman's Hermits, we got to do a concert with him. And because we had no idea about his personality and his sort of avariciousness, we didn't even go anywhere near money and stuff like that. We just told him that, you know, in England, people like Peter Noon and Derek Lickenby and and the guys in Herman's Hermits, when they heard his records... That represented America to us. Memphis, Tennessee, you know, and stuff like that. That was pure Americana to us. And, you know, in my case, he was the reason I wanted to come to America. Some people say the Beach Boys because they wanted to go to California. My reason was all his stories, they were all about America. He, He never wrote a story about anything except America. So we got to tell him that, you know, as if he wouldn't know. 
you know, English schoolboys like were really inspired by you. You know, we, uh, probably like Americans were inspired by the Beach Boys to go to the beach and everything. We wanted to come to America. He was the inspiration, and we knew that all kind of modern popular music was American, and he represented American popular music for us. And we got to tell him, Christian, that was the most important part of it. You know, quite often you you fans of people and you don't get an opportunity to walk up to them and say, hey, you know, I really, you know, you don't. We were just so young and naive that we just went straight in there and said, oh, man, Chuck Berry, you know, we, we used to listen to you in the car and in England and we, we wanted to go to Memphis. And, you know, we learned the song Memphis, Tennessee and roll over Beethoven and, you know, wow, you know, and we were, because we were kids. One of the opportunities that I would get because I was working in radio for all those years is I actually got to meet a few people and just got to tell them, you know, how much their work, whether it was an author, an actor, usually musicians were who I was most excited to meet because, you know, you're always used to literally looking up at them as they perform for you on the stage. And I was lucky enough to meet Alice Cooper a few years ago. And I mentioned to him that I was Dennis Miller's producer and his face lit up and he's like, how's Dennis doing? And how's his golf game? And then we had a good laugh where I basically shared a story Dennis had told on the radio about an awful outing that he and Charles Barkley did. And they were such terrible golfers that everyone started following them around to see how bad they were, as opposed to following the good golfers in the celebrity tournament. And that just cracked him up. And just being able to tell somebody like Alice, you know, look, I listened to your music when I was in middle school and I, I still enjoy it. I Dragged my wife to see him a number of times now. So, you know, it's it's great to get those opportunities. Yeah, really. And, you know, and, and it kind of, and because I had the opportunity, like you just had the opportunity to tell that story, because I told Chuck Berry that story, it changed the way I appreciated when people come up to me like in an autograph line and they want to tell you their story. You know, you have to listen. I was lucky because the people that I got to tell my story to, like Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and Roy Orbison and, and Frankie Valley, you know, I met them all over the first few years I was in the music business. And they were so kind and, and uh, humble in a way. You know, they, they had the ability to listen. You know, let me finish my story. Don't say next. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and that taught me sort of a bit of patience and tolerance now when people come up to me and say, you know, usually people come and say, you know, I saw you 50 years ago in Atlantic City, and, and I say something like, oh, you pushed a horse in the water, or, or you know, yeah, you haven't changed a bit, or some, <laughs> something, something just to connect with them, you know. And, and, you know, Chuck Berry made eye contact with me, and, and it was memorable that he actually had a look at me and kind of smiled like, well, thanks for telling me the story, you know. It wasn't like a fluff off, you know, how people in show business they just fluff people off, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's great. It, it's, it's great to hear about that story about Chuck Berry because usually after he passed, what people were mostly talking about was, rightly so, he had had some business misdealings on his behalf, and he was very particular about getting paid and all that stuff. But it's great to hear the stories like yours, where you got to tell him. And it's really interesting listening to you talk about that. I had never really thought about it because I'm an American. But those are such American stories. Like Johnny B. Good might as well be Johnny Appleseed or some other you know folk hero. And really, he is a folk hero when you think about the fact that that, that song is now well more than 50 years old. Probably 60 at this point. Well, you know, I was surprised when they made Bob Dylan the Pope Laureate because I thought that maybe Chuck Berry would have been the first rock and roll person, you know, the first poet. But that's because we're English, so we appreciated his poetry because it was about America. It wasn't about, uh, you know, 
the Russians had come in and all that stuff. It was just all pure, like, rock and roll. You know, it was all happy stuff. And, you know, he sang the story, you know, uh, long-distance information, and at the end it had a little twist that was a full story. You know, the whole song was a be- had a beginning and a middle and an end, and we got it. You know, we understood it. And you listen to the song and roll over Beethoven and, and all the songs, are, are par- you know, they're all about this paradise place that he lives in where people have real lives. And so I, I was a big fan. I mean, we, we, me and the Hermits, when we were kids, we just would learn all the songs and some of them didn't work for us. Oh, God, the Beatles are doing roll over Beethoven. We better drop that. <laughs> and, you know, everybody wanted to have unique songs. But we, when we got to Memphis, Tennessee in like 1965 on the first tour, we opened with Memphis, Tennessee, you know, because we could. Everybody knew that. I'm sure the Stones did it as well. You know, every English band would come to Memphis and do Memphis, Tennessee, the Chuck Berry version. Now, to be in Memphis, Tennessee in the 60s, coming over from England, was that a lot more of a culture shock than going somewhere like New York or Los Angeles? All of it was a shock for us because, you, you know, it's like the drummer had an eight millimeter camera and he did that tourist thing in New York. He just went up and down tall buildings, you know, like look how tall all the buildings are, mom. But the rest of America was always a shock for us. Cause we, on our first tour, we would little Anthony and the Imperials and we had no idea what was going on in America. <laughs> Remember in 65, it was still full on. I mean, it was still, the civil rights movement was in full force, you know, but we, we were so naive, we had no idea any of that was going on. So most of it was kind of shocking to us because we were English. We had no idea that we didn't know any of the history of stuff in America. We, <laughs> we'd only grown up in our own little neighborhoods, you know, and read a few books. But to see it full on was, that was the culture shock for us, that there were so many rednecks out there. We're talking to Peter Noon, and as I'm talking to you, Peter, I realize, of course, I always knew from a producer standpoint why you were such a great guest, but as a host actually interviewing you right now, I have notes in front of me, and I just added several things as you talk, because now there's things that I didn't know I wanted to ask you about, but I really want to hear about uh, you getting to meet Johnny Cash. I don't know that you ever told that story on The Dennis Miller Show. No, I didn't, you know, but I, because it was an accident, really. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and he showed up, in the, he was staying in the same hotel, and we got in the elevator together, and he had a, a kind of record player where you take the lid off and the lid becomes the speaker. You know, a battery-operated record player. Wow. He had Free Wheeling by Bob Dylan. It's like when the Stones met on a bus and you know, somebody's got a Muddy Waters record. So he's, he gets in the elevator, and he's, he's kind of a bit unsteady. I don't know how to explain that nicely. He's a bit unsteady. And I say, oh, man, so happy to meet you. You know, I'm, I'm English and, uh, and, you know, I've got all your records and, you know, my favorite. And he, and he starts saying, have you ever heard Bob? Have you ever heard of Bob Dylan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, and I wanted to talk about him, but he only wanted to talk about Bob Dylan. And sometime during the interview, he says to me, my interviewing him, think about it. I mean, I, I was a kid, so I had no... Uh, I had no censorship. I just kept going. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, but what about, what about, and, um, and, and a fan. And I started to say, you know, the stuff that you did in the Carter family. And he goes, wait a second. How do you know all this, the Carter family? How, how do you know all this stuff? You know, this punk. I said, well, and I, and I stupidly said, well, well, everybody in England, I mean, all my, everybody in England knows that stuff, meaning, you know, everybody of my age who's in, in the music business. So he says to me, well, 
I'm making this record tonight with Bob Gom- Montgomery at the, some 16 tons or some recording studio. So, it's, 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 you know, because I, I always said the same thing, can I come with you? I had no other sentence that I, I did it to the Stones, did it to the Beatles. Every time I said, can I come with you? Like a kid, you know. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the way there, we stopped in a bar. And during the bar scene, I was too young to drink, remember? So I was just sort of acceptable sort of kid. And during some part of the evening in this bar, he disappeared. <laughs> and, I got, and he disappeared. I still naively <laughs> and optimistically went to the studio. And I get there, and there's this guy, Bob Montgomery, I think his name was, who was this famous producer. He maybe done the Bob Dylan record, I can't remember. Maybe that's the connection with him having the CD, the LP with him. So I go to the studio and I go, and they go like, who are you? <laughs> I said, oh, I'm, I, met, I met Johnny Cash. And uh, well, where is it? I said, well, he was in the bar. And I, and I you took Johnny to a bar? <laughs> said, no, I, he took me. I'm 17. <laughs> uh, and years later, years later, I'm in, I'm in the Nashville airport and they've got this upstairs uh, American Airlines club. It's like up the stairs. It's not on the same level as the thing. So I'm walking there and coming down the... I'm walking through the terminal and coming down the stairs, I see Johnny Cash and his wife. And they both looked over at me and go, Herman! <laughs> and it kind of made... It was, it was like a life-changing moment. I go, how fantastic that those people even know who I am. You know, those iconic... You know, in the old original meaning of iconic, you know, not like an iconic... Uh, pop star, but, you know, an, an American icon who knew my name, even though it was Herman. <laughs> right. He, he knew yeah. who you were, even and though I he thought your over, name was Herman. Yeah, yeah, and I chatted with him. I went with him and I chatted. He knew who I was, but he only knew me as Herman from Herman Summits, which is great. This was just That's my Johnny Cash story. He was always fantastic, but he did dump me in a bar. <laughs> Knock out on me. <laughs> I'm going to just feel like you're not going to be on a very short list of people who have that story. Met Johnny Cash, ended up in a bar, and then all of a sudden lost track of him. <laughs> and someone was angry that they took him to a bar. You also mentioned meeting Roy Orbison, and he's someone that, as a person, at least me personally, I don't know a lot about him. I mean, I know he has great music, and obviously I'm a, a bit younger. And I was much more aware of sort of there was this resurgence of Roy Orbison towards the later part of his life. You know, he had that song in the movie Blue Velvet. He was part of the Traveling Wilburys. And he, Dennis would talk about this amazing performance he did of Crying on Saturday Night Live in 1987, where he had never seen, Dennis had never seen, there was a standing ovation at the end of it, which people always applauded because it's TV and a light says applause. But he was just like, I had never seen anything like that. Uh, what can you talk about Roy Orbison, about meeting Roy Orbison? Well, first of all, first of all, there's, there's all these kind of Americans who like Conway Twitty and Roy Orbison and Gene Pitney, who were far bigger legendary people in England than they were in their own country. You know, the same as like little Richard Jerry Lewis. All those people had careers that were massive in England, where, you know, they were the, like the Rolling Stones of their generation, where everybody who won, everybody went to see Roy Orbison. If he was on tour, it was very difficult to get a ticket. He was like massive in England. And... And we were lucky because we'd seen him loads of times as, as fans. And we got on this show called Top of the Pops in England, where everybody who's in the charts 
which which was quite a fascinating TV show because we would be on television with the Supremes and Roy Orbison and the Beatles and the Four Seasons and the Honeycombs all on the same night on a Thursday night in Manchester, which was our hometown. So we met Roy Orbison and, and he, first of all, he was a real gentleman, you know, like that country, you know, Texas, I guess, gentleman. He was very, very well-mannered and Yes, sir, and you know, one of those guys. So, so we were impressed because he was a, a, a real god to English musicians. Because anybody who did his songs had to have their chops. You know what I mean? It's like only person who could do Roy Orbison was probably one of the Gib, Robin Gibb was the only person who could even get close. So, he he was the chap. And a, a kind of weird story about Roy Orbison. I I saw this guy Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondell wrote the book. And in the book, he says that he met me at some gig in Birmingham, Alabama, 1964 or whatever. And it was, he met me and Eric Burden together. And I was very nice to him, but Eric Burden was a grumpy old man. But Eric's always been a grumpy old man. He, I said, but he's still a grumpy old man. So I said to Tommy James, you know, you've got to give Eric a break. He just isn't that kind of affable person like Peter Noon. So, you know, I'm kind of just protecting my friend Eric. And he goes... Yeah, but you know, you were really nice. I said, where did, where, why, why did we, I said, well, you know, what happened to us when we were big, like a bit, we were on a tour with the Beatles, you know, a gig with the Beatles, and we were like stunned because they came to the dressing room and said, hello, lads, it's nice to have you on the tour. Thanks for being on the tour. Like, like we were, like we existed. You know, nobody in the audience paid a nickel to see us, but everybody paid money to see the Beatles, and we were just thrown in there with them, you know what I mean? But they came to the dressing room, a couple of them, and we were like, Wow, this is just amazing stuff. The Beatles came to our dressing room. How nice is that? Then I have this conversation with Tommy James that I was nice to him. He said, where does that come? I said, well, we got it from the Beatles. And then he said, I wonder where they get it. I wonder where they got it from. I said, you know. So I called this guy, Tony, who's always worked for Paul, Paul McCartney. He's always worked for Paul McCartney since he was 11. Right? So I said to Tony, his name's Tony Bramwell. Tony. Can you find out where the Beatles got that from? Because it was it Brian Epstein who was such a gent. He probably said, "You've got to go and say hello to all the opening acts." So he went ch- checked it out. It was Roy Orbison. They'd done a tour with Roy Orbison in like 1963, and Roy Orbison had come down from the star dressing room to look for them to welcome them on his tour. When they were nobody, I mean, they were really nobody. He was a massive. When I went to that show, when the Beatles were on stage, people were shouting, "We want Roy!" Wow. I mean, first of all, it was, <laughs> it was in Liverpool. I mean, first of all, yeah. to be at that show, Roy Orbison and the Beatles, whichever order they play in, that's amazing right there. But for it to be in Liverpool and people are cheering for Roy, that's amazing. And that says a lot about Roy, also a lot about the guys who were in the Beatles, that they took that to heart and then went and did it because they knew how it made them feel. I mean, you hear all the time bands that are nowhere as big as the Beatles or Roy Orbison or Herman's Hermits who don't do that for the opening act. And, you know, sometimes you'll ask a performer, hey, didn't you tour with so-and-so? And they'll be like, we went on stage before they did, but uh, we never even really saw them. Everybody's a little bit precious about time now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think the Stones have got it down perfectly. They have a back. You get a backstage for this past. 
backstage pass for the Stones, but they never go backstage. <laughs> so that's the best trick. That's a um, great trick. You, you know, get everyone herded backstage, and then you don't go anywhere yeah. near it, so that you don't have to worry <laughs> about them bombing. <laughs> Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, and it, it's a great story that you've told on the Dennis Miller show over the years about hanging out with the Beatles and the can I come with you? I don't know if I remember you said that you were with the Stones and you said the only thing you thought of, can I come with you? What was that situation? Was it again when you were very young or was did it happen a little bit later? Yeah, I was always very young compared to the Stones. So what happened was like I was probably 17 and we did a TV show in Birmingham and you know, at the time, everybody in Herman Summits lived with their moms. I lived with my grandmother in Manchester because the band was from Manchester. But everyone after a TV show would go home to their moms. And I didn't want to go home to my grandmother's. So I said to the Stones, where are you going after the show? Thinking, you know, maybe they had a gig somewhere. And they thought, are we going back to London? So I said, can I come with you? And they kind of, okay. So I got, they had a, a big blue Chrysler massive car for England, you know, it maybe was a regular a Chrysler, big blue Chrysler. And I get in and they had a left, it was left-hand drive, which is kind of inconvenient in England. But they had this guy called Reg King, who was the driver and kind of minder, and he was a bit of one of those uh, hefty boys, you know what I mean? He, he was handy. And we get in the car and I, I'm sitting in the front, there's me and Andrew Oldham in the front and three of the stones, four of the stones in the back. And, um, <laughs> While we're driving along the motorway, the freeway on the way back, he's got a left-hand drive car. And he, as we pass those poor people with caravans, you know, in England they have these things called caravans, and, and they have a big wing mirror. And as we he'd drive up and out of the left-hand drive window, he would take a hammer out of his jacket and smash their rear-view mirror. Wow. And everyone would go, yeah! <laughs> and I'd go, ah. Oh. <laughs> we went all the way to London smashing people's mirrors uh, off their cars. Oh, no. And I go, that could have been my granddad or my uncle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was such a nerd. I sort of cheered it along, and then we got to London, and they all went their merry. They dropped them off one at a time, you know. And, and I was stuck with Reg and Alan and Andrew, who was, they, Andrew was a pure, he was the greatest inspirational guy, Andrew Oldman. He was, the, he was the key to the stones in those days. He was our press man, and he had the stones, and he, and he was so inventive, and so he was a real... His book is great because he calls himself a pimpresario, which is a great word. And um, he, he, he was really on it. He knew all about surfing, and he had people working for him. He was like most inspirational guy in England. He had this plan for the Stones that they were going to do this, and, and Herman Summits were going to be the clean boys of rock and roll. I said, well, we don't have to act. We already do. Like, we all live with our moms and dads. <laughs> you know, we don't have an apartment where we can bring birds back. <laughs> You know, you telling the story about them smashing the windows, uh, well, smashing the rearview mirrors and just sort of being horrified is kind of the way that I think when I hear stories like that, that that's how I would be if I somehow inexplicably found myself in a situation like that. And I think a lot of people might get caught up in the moment. Oh, I'm hanging out with these guys, the Rolling Stones. They're so cool. Let me grab the hammer. But instead, you're just like, oh, yeah, they're they're on a different they're on a different plane of existence than I am. I'm just sort of here to watch as a conscientious observer, as it were. Yeah, yeah, observer, conscientious observer. That's, that's exactly what I was. I, I, but I still went, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, because you don't want them to be like, you know, well, yeah, who's who's the square in the back who's uh, going to say, hey, guys, calm down. Let's Let's be respectful of other people's property, you know. 
I say chaps, I say chaps. That could be my grandfather. Uh, You know, I referenced it. And the way I remember your story about hanging out with the Beatles when you were, I think, 16 or 17, did you go to Hamburg with them and you were underage at that point? Do I remember that story correctly? No, I I did go to Hamburg, but not with them. Okay. I went to, what happened was, again, similarly, but this time I just knew where the Beatles went. You know, I knew where they lived and I knew where they went at night because it was just, I was kind of in the music scene and I was kind of fashionable at the time. And, you know, Herman was this sort of guy, Carnaby Street kind of character, all dressed up and ready to go for whatever was was happening. So, you know, I'd get invited to, you know, I'd, I'd, get, I'd go to Richard Harris for dinner and Brian Epstein to see bands. And, you know, I was one of the kind of around town when I wasn't busy, I was available. So I, I, I knew that they would go to the Adlib. So I show up at the Adlib Club, which was this sort of very posh club around the back of Leicester Square, expecting any one of the Beatles to show up because that's where they always went. And I, as I got in the lift to go up to the, to the club, which was upstairs somewhere, John Lennon and this guy called Terry Doran, who was his driver, um, the man from the motor trade, and they both get in the lift with me. And, and I was always known as Hermit. They didn't want to call me Herman. So they said, hey, Hermit. You know, I was always, <laughs> I didn't have a name. I was a Hermit, you know, like probably because they were always Beatles. So I, Hermit. So I get in the elevator with them. And in the elevator, they're playing Dolby Gray, I'm in with the in crowd. I'm in with the in crowd. Da, da, da. And I get embarrassed. <laughs> See, I'm visibly. Oh shit! This is about the worst thing that could happen. You're in the beat. You're in the elevator with the Beatles, and I'm in with the in crowd. Comes on. What do you say? So I said nothing. But I go in the club, and they let me in, which is amazing because I was waiting. I probably was just seventeen, just seventeen, nowhere near eighteen. And you have to be eighteen to get a drink in England. We go in, and, and John says something like, "Oh, the last one to sit down is an egg," or something silly like that. So right. I sit with them which is really cool. Now I'm sitting at the table with the Beatles and I'm sitting next to John Lennon because there's two seats on the booth and there's two seats. So Terry Doran is not going to be able to look at the birds, but me and John are. And I'm sitting with one of the Beatles and, and he goes, and they come over and they go, they go good evening. Listen, you know, I'm invisible. When you're with the Beatles, you're always invisible. <laughs> yeah. But I'm there and the girl comes over and it's like one of those girls that you, it's like, Playboy bunny kind of girl. And she looks at me and she knows I'm probably 13, not even 17. You know, I looked 13 when I was 17. <laughs> so she goes, there's a two drink minimum. So John says, I'll get two Bacardas, you get two Cokes. <laughs> and he got two Bacardas. And they were those little like airline bottles, right? Right. So he, the two Cokes, and he, and he passes one of the Bacardas over to me and takes one of my Cokes. And it was like, then I became the Bacardi and Dro- Coke man. I never knew what to order when I'd go in a bar. So I'd say, oh, Bacardi and Coke. <laughs> For years. And then the next time I saw them, they were drinking Scotch and Coke. So that became the next drink, you know. And he was smoking Lark cigarettes. So I got Larks. And then he, they were smoking. No, then they were still smoking Rothmans. You know, I just wanted to be one of the boys. You know, I, know I, was just a, I was just a musician slowly turning into an entertainer. Right. Well, they were musicians turning into musicians. So... It was good, good time because they were so kind, you know. Because it's just a kid who's in a kid who's in the same business. 
be nice to each other, you know. There was no competition. We did a gig at Wembley with them soon afterwards, this, like, uh, enemy pole concert. And it was, everybody was on the bills, like, New Who, you know, the Who's first, like, big, big concert, and the Kinks, and the Yardbirds, and the Beatles, and Cliff Richards, and the Shadows, and the Stones. And the Beatles let us use their gear. No one, no one would do that nowadays. No one would say, oh, you can use it. It'd be quicker for the changeover. Yeah. You know, we were like part of the crowd, you know, the non-competitive music, British music scene where everybody kind of watched each other and paid attention to each other's careers. And, you know, the Beatles would say, we've got this good song coming out. And the Stones would say, oh, we're going to save ours for a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? So we don't compete. It sounds so much friendlier than the way that the music business is, not even now, really, even a few years later. And the idea of sharing equipment, like you said, that's unheard of then, unheard of now, especially unheard of as somebody of the caliber of the Beatles. I mean, I guess at a certain point, you know, a lot of these performers turned into artists with a capital A and they're like, well, you know, of course, no one's going to touch my guitar except for me, you know, except and like one trusted technician who can tune it. So it sounds every bit as fun as I, I imagine that it was especially in those days. Now, as the years went on and, you know, they weren't in the Beatles anymore, but they were all doing their own thing. Did you continue to cross paths with them on occasion or were they just, you know, sort yeah. of in the stratosphere? No, they, you know, there was always a connection. Like we used the same studio, you know, we would be at Abbey Road and, and Paul McCartney would be in one studio and John Lennon, you know, bit by bit, they all split up. I don't know if, that, I don't know if the, the record buying public was aware of it, but they became, as soon as you take the band out of the van, it changes, you know, the stones change as well. You know, we change, you know, so what happens is you're all in a van together and you all listen to the same radio station and you're all singing along to like uh, the searchers. And then some, one of the guys, you all move to London and one of the guys like is dating a doctor's daughter and one of the guys is dating a model and they've got to impress those people that they're not really like working class yobos from up north. So bit by bit, everybody separates and sort of takes on this new persona, really. And they did that quickly, the Beatles. So they were recording separately. So we would, we'd be at Abbey Road, you know, me and Mickey Most, who was my, my best friend and my record producer. We'd be at Abbey Road and you could, I've still got the tracks, you know, the, the studio sheets, like the, you can see John Lennon is in the studio A, room number one. Paul McCartney's in number two, and he's recording Mary Hopkin. I mean, I know this, and Paul and John is doing um, uh, something with Yoko, you know, uh, I think it's called Elephant's Memory. And I'm in doing, you know, there's a kind of hush all over the world. And when the Beatles, anybody from the Beatles wants any equipment, like it's not the share time anymore, like they come in and say, oh, we need that... Uh, that, that piece of equipment. Oh, but we're using it right now because we're just doing a string mix. And they say, well, the boys want it. And I'd say, we're boys, they're men. <laughs> and, and they would be recording and we'd run into each other. And, and like w one memorable thing is you can see all these cameramen hiding in the trees and everything. And, and I'm with my wife. I just got married, so it must be 1968. And we can see all these cameramen hiding in trees and, and people like all mystery stuff going on around the recording studio. So both my wife and I, oh no, no, my wife knew. I, I'm going, oh, I wonder what Yoko's up to now. She's probably got a bag or she's going to climb out of the TV. Or, you know, <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen. And it was that thing where the man comes up to you and says, Peter Newman, this is your life. It wasn't anything to do with the Beatles. So this guy says, this is your life. And in the background, you've got like John 
snickering, you know. <laughs> Remember the word snicker? Yes. Snickering. <laughs> Hermit, you're on the telly, you know. It's great, it's great. Oh, that's great. It's great, great. memories. They always remain, they always remain nice, nice people, you know. You know, I, I saw Ringo, like I was in Canada, and I went to one of his gigs on my night off. And, I, you know, I, I forced my way backstage, and, I, 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 and he goes, I say, hello, how are you doing? And he goes, give us a hug. Give us a hug, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still nice. It's nice that everybody got back to normal, you know. We're only normal people who happen to have a few hit records. It's amazing to hear, especially about people of the level of the Beatles, that they have had such a long time in the public eye that the expectation would be, you know what, they're okay, but they're a little standoffish. But it's so great to hear that they continue to kind of be those kids from Liverpool. And it didn't hurt that you knew them back then, but it just seems like they, more than anything, really just wanted to have fun. Well, and, and you know, Paul McCartney famously said... You know, he was in, like, one of those chemists on Oxford Street where the Beatles aren't supposed to go. And this young hermit comes up to him and goes, my goodness, what is this? And what's the world come to? The Beatles standing in the chemist buying a toothbrush. And he goes, well, watch this. And the, and the woman comes, turns around and goes, uh, he goes, could I get one of those toothbrushes? And I think it's the McQueen's whatever toothbrush, toothpaste. And she goes, oh, you're Paul McCartney. Could I get your autograph for my niece? And he goes, yeah, what's her name? To Louise, Paul McCartney, hands it back to her. She gives him the toothpaste and he said, you see, Hermes, it's easy to be nice to people. It takes exactly the same time as being an arsehole. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Yeah, and I don't know, it's great to hear. And it's one of those things that clearly you took to heart because whenever we would have you on the radio show, we would get so many questions for you. People on the phone, people who weren't able to listen and would send emails. And I would compile those emails. And you knew who a lot of them were because whenever you were in their city, they would come up and see you. And it seems like it's it's such an easy thing to do. And yet so many people don't take the time to just be kind to their fans, just treat them like a person, you know? And like you said, it's well, so much easier than just telling them to, you know, go piss off or whatever. Well, I think it's hard to be appreciative. You know, it's like if you've got one woman, you really appreciate it. But if you've got a dozen of them all at home, you, you know, first of all, a couple of them will gang up on, on one. So, you know, it's best to just, get, I could treat everybody like a, how I would like to expect to be treated. And luckily... You know, I met the Everly Brothers when I was about 12, and they were so personable. I, couldn't, I was like, wow. And then at the same time, I met Mickey Most as well, and he came out, and he didn't get on the bus. He got in a Porsche car. I go, that's the man. I, that's the, he's the cool one. <laughs> they, they were very nice to all their friends, and the Stones were on that tour as well. And they came out, and they, they were, everybody was more friendly. I think what happens is the management, it's like the same with Tom Parker, always kept Elvis out of interviews and things. And Elvis, I met him. I was in shock that he was so smart and personable. I had no idea he was like a Cockney rebel. He had one-liners and funny jokes because they, his management kept him away from people. They wanted to make us all think he was just like this truck driver from Tupelo, Mississippi, <laughs> who was like brain dead. And right. he was not. He was a cool, funny guy. He knew about the Rolling Stones. He knew about the Beatles. He, you know, he was paying attention. But they kept him away from everybody and loaded him up with all these, you know, those 
guys who were supposed to be his friends who weren't there when they, when he needed them. Yeah, no, and he that, was a cool guy. That's great to hear because, as you said, most people he was just sort of this figure you were in awe of, and you didn't really get to interact with him. So getting to talk to him and knowing that he was a cool guy who was who was funny. I mean, you like to think he was. Did you run into him just in the early days, or as sort of his career went on, did you uh, still run into him once in a while, or was it very difficult? I run into, into him often, but you know, there was the one time when I, I got to interview him. It was, I, I was set up to interview him in Hawaii. He was doing Hawaii. Uh, he was doing one of those movies that he made in Hawaii. So they, they took us to these huts, whatever they're called in, in, in Hawaii, to meet him. It was just me and the drummer. We were the only people who got up at 6 a.m. in the morning, and he could only see him before they. Uh, he could only meet people before they started shooting. So we got up at 4 a.m. Oh, no, we stayed up all night actually. We were, <laughs> we were lame, and uh, we were afraid to fall asleep and not do it. So, so we we went there, and we looked like we looked like hermits. You know what I mean? And and he he immediately punked us. So they go, he's in that hut over there. So we go in the hut, and there's like this this person lying down like flat on his face, like clearly on an overdose of alcohol. <laughs> and and we go in there and we go, oh my God. Uh, and we don't know what to do. So we're both, we're both about 17 or 18. So we don't say a word. We just stand in there like waiting for this like person to, to turn over. And and then Elvis walks in. And this guy turns <laughs> over and go, you know, uh, we truly thought it was Elvis. And Elvis, the, the biggest shock still to this day, he looked just like Elvis. And I was kind of shocked because most people, when you meet, you think of them, they're not, in retrospect, he was made up to make a motion picture. But he was really a beautiful guy, you know, and, and just, I was like in shock. I was like stunned because he was so awesomely handsome and looking like Elvis. Uh, it, it kind of shocked me because, you know, you'd meet the Stones and they didn't look as good as they did on the album covers and they looked horrible on their album covers. <laughs> I was Elvis. about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Elvis looked like that. He was smart, he was funny, and he was an amazing musician. It's it's so crazy that, uh, you know, a, a, a creature like that comes along, I don't know, maybe once a century that just has everything. And I don't know. It's I love hearing stories like that about the people you ran into. And, Peter, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but, you know, we both have things that we need to get done. Uh, what I want to let people know, of course, as I mentioned in the introduction, your website is peternoon.com and it's at peternoon. And if people go there and they check under your tour dates, they'll find out you're in places like Maricopa, Arizona, State Line, Nevada, El Cajon, California, Snoqualmie, Washington, and that's just in like the next week or so. How many dates a year, roughly, do you do? We, we go for 150. Last year we did 138, and this year we're going to do 129, I think. It's a sense of gratitude, really, that, that we can still enjoy the actual... The, the only part of the job that isn't a job is the actual performance. You know, traveling is a bit sticky, but every every part of it is an adventure to me still. You know, I'm still meeting new people. I'm still trying to get my show right. I still try new stuff, you know, and, and it's lots of that being in the moment and all the things that I've learned over the years are all used in every show. So, you know, I just enjoy it. I go try new stuff. I think I'm going to try that um, the 1st of May by the Bee Gees when I was small and Christmas trees were tall. You know, that one, it might touch the audience in a sort of way about, you know, a nice way of saying we're older now without saying ages and 
weight <laughs> sizes and stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, all those ages and jokes. So, 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 you know, it's all a big adventure to me. You know, I've always been pretty... Have the, I have the ability to learn and listen still, which is nice. Yeah, no, and the fact that you are still out there and you do it and you enjoy doing it, obviously that's the key to it. I remember that was always one of the most difficult things about scheduling you to sit in for an hour with Dennis, even though you lived down the street. You were usually not home, you know, so sometimes it'd be like, hey, do you want to come on the show? Sure, in two months when I'm back, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, it was always great to uh, have you on the show. And getting to talk to you today has been so much fun. And like I said, I, I had a note that said Chuck Berry, and then we talked for about 40 minutes about all these other things that came up and (laughs) i i I really appreciate it and uh it's it's uh always great to get to talk to you thank you christian you take care of yourself all right you too peter thanks so much and once again that was peter noon and i said his website peternoon.com he's on twitter at peter noon wow that was so much fun getting the chance to talk to peter noon i had told him before we started that i was going to talk to him for maybe 20 minutes and uh Look at that. It was the better part of an hour. Uh, So great to talk to Peter. Also great to get to talk to Steve Hayes, who's now the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard. This was yet another fun installment of this Black Cat celebration to the Dennis Miller Show. And we've gotten such great feedback, and I've had so much fun doing it, and I've thought of so many other people I'd like to talk to. We're going to continue to do these throughout the year. This is it for this week, and we're going to get back to the usual Black Cast thing, which I think some of you will enjoy. And you know what? It's okay if some of you don't. If you check out future Black Casts and you're like, well, all they talk about is comic books and science fiction and boobs unfortunately that's fairly accurate that's (laughs) tends to be what the black cast is usually about but you should stay tuned to the black cast to find out when we'll do some more of these tributes to the dennis miller show you know it's the 10th anniversary i have a semi-ambitious expectation of trying to do 10 of them now so we've got three under our belts so maybe a little bit later on in the spring we'll do one or two more Please let us know if you're enjoying them. And the way to do that, of course, is following us on Twitter at BlackCast, B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can like The BlackCast on Facebook. And, of course, we're at BlackCast.com. Thank you to all the guests this week. Thanks to Larry O'Connor. Thanks to Thaddeus McCotter. Thanks to Deborah Saunders. Thanks to Dr. Corsi. Thanks to Jillian Melcher. Thanks to Steve Hayes. And of course, thanks to Peter Noon, who I just had such a fun conversation with. And we will see you next time on The Black Cast. But for now, this has been our tribute to... The Dennis Miller Show on Westwood One.